quick recap from Act 12 from last week. The prompt from this for this came from the Minister's Training a weekend in September. Simon Jarvis, who's the OG lead, on the leadership team with responsibility for training, uh, kicked off the Saturday sharing 20 to 30 minutes from, on Act 12. And as I listened, I thought there's something in this for us at Junction 10. Vicky, who was also there, agreed, and so we've put a couple of weeks aside to have a look at this. And last week, we learned that a fair number of folk at Junction 10 are not reliant on oxygen and water. I asked the question, hand up if you're reliant on oxygen and water. And about 30, 40% didn't put the hand up. So we've asked them to donate their bodies to medical research and the end of their days. But more importantly than that, we looked at the fact that Peter's first destination after getting out of prison was Mary's house. He didn't go home for a wash or a change of clothes. His first thought was to go to Mary's house because he knew that's where the early believers would be gathering. And we started to look at what characterised Mary's house. Why was Peter so keen to get there? And we pulled out a couple of the, the bigger themes of perhaps more obvious points that Mary's house was a house of prayer and Mary's house was a house of faith. And we said that we'd pick it up again this morning and I know if you were here last week, you've all been waiting with great anticipation ever since. And it would be wrong of me to think back to that line, how do you keep an idiot in suspense? Yeah. I'll tell you next week. <laughs> if, if the person next to you has got a blank look, explain it to me. <laughs> but just before we go into this morning's message, can I also acknowledge those who have said thank you for last week and shared encouragement with me. And although we were looking at the theme from um, the characteristics of Mary's house from a church point of view, how it applies to us, um, if, if we are to become, if we're becoming a community with Jesus at the centre. Some of you reflected it also prompted you to consider the characteristics of your own household and whether is my house a house of prayer. So thank you for that. But we'll start by reading Acts 12 again. We did read it last week, but we'll read it again this. So it'll come up on the screen and it's from the message version. So that's when King Herod got it into his head to go after some of the church members. He murdered James, John's brother. When he saw how much it raised his popularity ratings with the Jews, he arrested Peter, all this during Passover week, mind you, and had him thrown in jail, putting four squads of four soldiers each to guard him. He was planning a public lynching after Passover. All the time that Peter was under heavy guard in the jailhouse, the church prayed for him most strenuously. Then the time came for Herod to bring him out, of, out for the kill. That night, even though shackled to two soldiers, one on either side, Peter slept like a baby, and there were guards at the door keeping their eyes on the place. Herod was taking no chances. Suddenly, there was an angel at his side, and the light flooding the room. The angel shook Peter and got him up. Hurry! The handcuffs fell off his wrist. The angel said, get dressed, put on your shoes. Peter did it. Then, grab your coat and let's get out of here. Peter followed him, but he didn't believe it was really an angel. He thought he was dreaming. Past the first guard and then the second, they came to the iron gate that led into the city. It swung open before them on its own, and they were out onto the street, free as the breeze. At the first intersection, the angel left him, going his own way. That's when Peter realised it was no dream. I can't believe it. This really happened. The master sent his angel and rescued me from Herod's vicious little production and the spectacle the Jewish mob was looking forward to. Still shaking his head, amazed, he went to Mary's house, the Mary who was John Mark's mother. The house was packed with praying friends. When he knocked on the door to the courtyard, a young woman named Rhoda came to see who it was. 
but when she recognised his voice, Peter's voice, she was so excited and eager to tell everyone Peter was there that she forgot to open the door and left him standing in the street. But they wouldn't believe her, dismissing her, dismissing her report. You're crazy, they said. She stood by her story, insisting. They still would not believe her and said, it must be his angel. All this time, poor Peter was standing out in the street, knocking away. Finally, they opened up and saw him and went wild. Peter put up his hands and calmed them down. He described how the master had gotten him out of jail, then said, tell James and the brothers what's happened. He left them and went off to another place. At daybreak, the jail was in an uproar. Where is Peter? What's happened to Peter? When Herod sent for him, and they couldn't even produce him, nor explain why not, he ordered their execution. Off with their heads! Fed up with Judea and the Jews, he went for a vacation in Caesarea. But things went from bad, for, from, from bad to worse for Herod. Now people from Tyre and Sidon put him on the warpath. They got blasters, King Herod's right-hand man, to put in a good word for them, and got a delegation together to iron things out. Because they were dependent on Judea for food supplies, they couldn't afford to let this go on too long. On the day set for their meeting, Herod, robed in pomposity, took his place on the throne and regaled them with a lot of hot air. The people played their part to the hilt and shouted flatteries, the voice of God, the voice of God. That was the last straw. God had had enough of Herod's arrogance and sent an angel to strike him down. Herod had given God no credit for anything. Down he went, rotten to the core, a maggoty old man, if there ever was one. He died. Meanwhile, the ministry of God's word grew in leaps and bounds. Barnabas and Saul, once they had delivered the relief offering to the church in Jerusalem, went back to Antioch. This time, they took John with them, the one that was called Mark. So the first observation to pick up this week is that Mary's house was a house of resource. Verse 12 we say, when he realised this, he went to the home of Mary, the mother of John Mark, where many were gathered for prayer. He knocked at the door of the gate and a servant girl named Rhoda came to open up. Some, some uh, versions of the Bible say servant girl, others in the message just refer to her as, as young girl. Now the word in the New Testament, usually translated as servant, actually means slave. And referred to someone who was owned or controlled by someone else. Not just a servant hired to do a certain job. Some people were slaves because they were born to slave parents. Others were captured in war and forced to become slaves. And some people actually sold themselves into slavery because it meant that they could have a higher standard of life. They didn't have to struggle to find housing and food on their own. So in order for there to be a servant girl at Mary's house, it had to be a house of financial resource. Now some have speculated that Mary was a wealthy widow, and we also read earlier in the book of Acts about examples of believers pooling their resources. So we can't be certain exactly where the wealth of Mary's house came from, but it was a house of financial resource. So am I saying that if we're to be a community with Jesus at the centre, we need to be a house of financial resource? Well, yes and no. Can, we be a can you be a community with Jesus at the centre without financial resource? I'd say yes. Depending on your circumstances or the people there, and in that scenario, if the bank balance doesn't indicate financial resource, there's got to be a belief that God will provide and God will meet every need. However, where individuals in the community do have financial resource, I think it should be a characteristic in the community too. Is that fair enough? Yeah? Think about it. Let me try and explain. 
Because as a church, we believe that tithing is an important part of our relationship with God. Yeah, if you're part of Junction 10, would you agree? Because we can tithe on our income, giving away a percentage instead of keeping that money for ourselves. It shows that we love God more than our money. Should do. As we look to put Jesus at the centre of our lives, giving away our finance indicates that we've given God control of them. Yeah? And we remember that everything that we have is given to us by him. Now the practice of tithing says that you give 10% of your income. But actually Jesus taught a much more extravagant free will giving based on faith in God as the provider. In 2 Corinthians chapter 9 verses 6 to 10 we read, Remember this, a farmer who plants only a few seeds will get a small crop. But the one who plants generously will get a generous crop. You must each decide in your heart how much to give. And don't give reluctantly or in response to pressure, for God loves a person who gives cheerfully. And God will generously provide all you need. Then you will have everything that you need and plenty left over to share with others. As the scriptures say, they share freely and give generously to the poor. Their good deeds will be remembered forever. For God is the one who provides seed for the farmer and then bread to eat. In the same way, he will provide and increase your resources and then produce a great harvest of generosity in you. And let me say at this point, though, that tithing isn't mandatory. Tithing's not mandatory. Yeah? Whether you tithe or not doesn't affect your salvation. And it doesn't affect how you're treated here at Junction 10 because as leaders we don't know who tithes, we don't know how much people tithe, we don't know. So we don't look favourably on some because well they give well and give the others a style biscuit because don't give <laughs> I hope nobody gets a style biscuit now at the end of the service <laughs> we check the dates the dates are checked at all. we don't we don't look at that but we recognise that tithing can be a challenge for various different reasons it may be that you've got a partner who doesn't share your faith it can be difficult to say, I'm giving money away, if your partner thinks, why on earth are you giving money away? And doesn't understand that relationship and, and, and the purpose. Or it may just be the struggle of day-to-day bills, especially at the moment. And if you don't tithe, like we read, I don't want you to feel guilty or coerced into starting tithing today. It's a matter of the heart. It's a matter of the heart. And, you can, and the, the other way is, you can be in a position of being able to give 10% easily, 20% easily, but don't because it's not in your heart to give money away. It works the other way as well. So no coercion or guilt, but encouragement. Can I encourage you to tithe? Giving something. It may not be the 10% to begin with, but giving something. And because in the room there's people who can testify to God's provision. As they have given, sometimes being obedient to God's instruction, despite it leaving them short at the end of the month on paper, they've given and they've been blessed. And tithing, by giving, you release a blessing. They've been blessed with financial gifts, which have more than covered that shortfall that they thought they got at the start of the month. But financial resource isn't the only resource that we have, is it? We can give our time, our giftings. We can give our time and giftings in service. We give our abilities 
to this house. Recognising we all have God-given abilities, are we willing to utilise them? Willing to use that resource in this house? Now, some of those abilities are perhaps more obvious when it comes to being in church and, and, and doing church. A pastoral gifting, a, a musical gifting, a, a, a teaching gifting. But we have so many more giftings here at Junction 10. People with entrepreneurial skills, engineering giftings. And the Talents Challenge was looking to utilise all those various different gifts and resources to benefit this community. Yeah, the Talents Challenge, remember that? I'm going to wait, we'll think we'll hear a bit more about it in, in a couple of weeks, a few weeks' time. It was about looking to utilise those different giftings, resources to benefit the community. And a community with Jesus, who's the author of all things at the centre, should be blessed with resources. Yeah? So this morning, consider what resources you bring, and don't limit it to the ones which are perhaps more obvious to the church setting. How can the resource that you bring help build this community with Jesus at the centre? So we're going to move on to the next point, and the rest of them are brief. That was the, 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 the biggie point this morning. The next point is Mary's house was a house of miracles. Finally, they opened up and saw him and went wild. Peter put his hands up and calmed them down. He described how the master had gotten him out of jail. If you read through Acts 12, nowhere do we read that the believers were praying for Peter's release. We read in verse 5, the church was playing, praying most strenuously or very earnestly for him. And when, we get to, when he got to the house in verse 12, we read that there were many gathered for prayer. But it doesn't actually say that they were praying for his release. And apparently, Dad mentioned last week, some preachers have criticised Mary's house for a lack of faith. Because, because we don't read that they were praying for his release, they're, they're, they're being critical of Mary's house. But we have to recognise the times that this took place. These were the very early days of the church. We read that the Apostle James had been killed already, and the church had been persecuted. And they didn't have the benefit of 2,000 years of history, of stories about God getting people out of prison. In verse 15, after being told Peter was at the door, the response was, you're out of your mind. It must be his angel. So what exactly were they praying for? Well, we can only sort of speculate, can't we? Perhaps they did pray for his release, and it's just not recorded in there. Perhaps they were praying for a fair hearing, or for strength for Peter. Prayers of thanks for his life, maybe. Praying that God's, wills, God's will would be done. Or, as we saw this morning, praying, God, turn it around. But whatever they were praying for, it resulted in the miracle of his release. And what a blessing and encouragement that would have been to the early church. Mary's house went wild, we read, when they realised it was Peter at the door, when they finally let him in. So as a community with Jesus at the centre, we should expect to see miracles. As a community with Jesus at the centre, we should expect to see miracles. Again, those early believers don't have that 2,000 plus years of testimony of God's miraculous provision that we can reference and recall to take encouragement from. And in 2023, as a community with Jesus at the centre, are we expecting miracles? Because we should expect them, we should call for them, and we should celebrate them. Are we expecting miracles this morning? Now, 
I'd like to think that we all believe that God is still able to perform miracles. Yeah? Yeah. yeah. But do we expect them? Mm. You know, I was thinking within the last five or six years, we've seen miracles here at Junction 10, and perhaps we maybe didn't celebrate them as much as it should. The first one that came to mind was Phil Miles passed his driving test. Yeah. <laughs> And mums. <laughs> maybe not one, maybe those aren't ones to celebrate too much, maybe, because <laughs> insurance premiums and all that. But no, Phil's a very good driver. You know, he knows the plumbing there. But in all seriousness, though, we had a young woman who took off her hearing aid and was able to hear. We had a young girl who was healed of allergies. Miraculous interventions. And I'm sure there's more stories. Does anybody want to share anything? Morning. Morning. So, uh, I'm Matt, if you don't know me. Um, 53 now, although I don't look it. Um, so when I, when I got to 30, I was driving a truck into Wales. I could feel my heart really going, really beating. Come over, all clammy. So I pulled over. Half an hour later, felt a bit better, carried on, got to my stop, started loading up, passed out. The part of the building where I was, I was on my own. When I came round, I could barely get up. I kind of had to get around the building, but kind of like, get up like this, lean against the wall, and make my way around. Um, anyway, they got me back into Worcester, they got me home, and I said to her, I said, my trousers feel really tight, can't get them off. And, uh, Basically, we had to pull them off. My, my legs were swollen up. Both my legs swollen up massive. Got the doctor out and he sent me to hospital and they scanned my legs and I got clocked behind each knee. And I clocked down here. So they put me on a, on a, a drip for a week and no change. So they sent me in uh, for another scan, scanned up a part of my body. When I saw the pictures, I thought, that's it. This is it. So you saw the main vein coming down here, and then it splits into two and goes down the leg. But this was actually wrapped around the main artery. What's the main artery called? Yeah, the aorta. And there, in the middle, you see a shape the size of my fist. So, and, and basically, they said to Sue, don't expect him out. So basically, it's, it's that severe, you've got no chance. Um, so they called a lot of specialists around and to cut a long story short, within seven weeks, they couldn't do an operation because it was too bad and they said you'll never work again and you'll never walk properly. So seven weeks later they let me out and we learned to live with it. For six and a half years we learned to live with it and but yeah, it's one of them, them times where you're seeking God because you know, you always know, you, you hear all the stories about God healing. Um, when our daughter was born, she was born blind. Well, she's not blind anymore, so heals, right? Yeah. So I got all these, these stories. When I was at 20, I was on the tour bus going across Eastern Europe to do the sound. And the, 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 the preacher basically called me. He said, Matt, we've got that many people need, need prayer. Pray for this line. And I said, well, I've only come to do the sound. And he said, no, no, I need you to do the, you know. So I pray for the first person. Uh, obviously, these were, these were Hungarian people. And she started jumping about. I said, what's wrong with her? He said, well, she's deaf and she can hear now. So I got all these stories of, you know, God healing. And I sat there and I thought, okay, 
So it's my turn, but I don't know what it's going to be. So for six and a half years, I was, you know, really began to seek God over, over why, because I, I knew he could heal me, but I didn't know why I wasn't healed. Um, so every week I would go and see the doctor, and uh, he said, yeah, you're right, you'll be okay, just keep going, take it easy. And after about two or three years, I could walk a bit better. I mean, to begin with, I was like, like this, and I felt like I'd got chains around my legs, I could barely do anything. And, and of course, in your head, you want to go to work, you want to do the things that you've already done, always done. Um, and so, of course, then you get the, the kind of mental pressures of not being able to do the things that you know you can do, and it gets you down a little bit. Anyway, October, October off, off term, 2006, I played somebody's wedding on the Sunday, friends come round for lunch, and then I feel really ill. On the Wednesday, I get worse, and when you get, you know, when you get uh, cramp in your calf, well, every muscle in my body was doing that, it was all cramping up, and our Josh was 14 at the time, I said, Josh, get me down because I can't stand. And it gets me down and then I can't breathe. I said, Josh, get me back up. And he said, well, I can't get you back up. Um, we called the doctor out. He comes on the Wednesday and he puts me on morphine and diazepam. Well, I ring my mate, Tim, who's a paramedic, and he says, the amount of drugs they've given to you is what I would administer to somebody who's just lost a limb on the side of the road or something like that. So this is the kind of pain within I was in. Uh, I missed a Thursday because I took too many drugs, but that's another story. That's, uh, I just, uh, you know, see with him administering the drugs, and I was in that much pain. Couldn't get upstairs, I was sleeping on the sofa. On the Friday, I said to Sue, get the, get the elders out. I said, I think this is it. I said, I'm, I'm a goner. I just, it's that much pain. And um, so the, the elders come out on the Friday, and uh, on the Friday night, and I'm lying on the sofa, and Sue's sat on the sofa over there with one of the elders. One of the elders just kneeled down the floor with me, and he just went, in the name of Jesus, be healed. And I went, thank you, Lord. And that was sick. I was sick, sick of the drugs. And I, I did something I hadn't done for like a week. I went to get up to see a man, and he went, no, 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 stay where you are. I went, okay. And I, I went to sleep. Anyway, that night was the first night I got up to bed. Uh, now we got my family around, because they all think I'm dying. And uh, six o'clock in the morning, I wake up and I jump out of bed. And I'm like, what? <laughs> and I have a little shake. <laughs> and I come downstairs and Susan's at the bottom of the stairs. what are you doing now? I said, well, something's happened. Well, look at this. And we do things I could never do before. And like these chairs, at our old church, my place at the old church, if I wasn't playing, would be on the steps at the back because I can't, I can't sit on these chairs because my legs would go numb driving across the city of Worcester to take the kids to school, I'd get them to school, and then I'd have to get out and have a walk around the car because my legs had gone numb. Um, and it's just, it's just one of them things we put up with. And so we try all, doing all the things we know I can't do. Well, if you say I'm healed, I. And uh, so I get up in this church on the Sunday, and I give the testimony, and somebody comes up to me, and he says, Matt, you look really big today. I said, well, you know what? I feel really big today. I feel, I feel huge. And we get home and they measure, measure me out six foot five and three quarters. Well, I've been six foot five for the last six and a half years because every week I go, I go to the doctors and they measure me. And I kind of started walking with a bit of step. Probably might have been to do with the pain I was in and stuff like that. And, uh, but everything that was wrong is now completely right. Um, so on the Monday, I go to the doctors and this guy, I just dropped the kids off at school and this guy comes up to me and says, I heard you yesterday. He says, what are you doing now? So I'm going to go to the doctors and I'm going to go and tell him that I've been healed and then I'm going to go down to the where I have to sign for my benefits. I'm going to tell him I don't need him anymore. He says, oh, don't do that. I looked at him and I says, you're joking. 
I said, you've known me for the last seven years. You've known me suffering, the suffering I've gone through. I said, if I go and sign for those benefits, it's like me saying, Jesus hasn't healed me. And he has, you know, and he has. So, and that's what I did. I walk into the doctor's. I said, right, doc. I says, uh, Dr. Penicky's name was. I says, take your mic if you want, but this is what's happened. And he looked at me, he said, Matt, he says, I'm a godly man and I can see. Yeah. My sister works for the, uh, the, the, the main guy at the hospital that I was under. And um, she says, you heard about Matt? And he went, yeah, she goes, it's stupid, isn't it? And he says, no, it's a miracle. So that was October 2006. <laughs> Here I am, I'm working, and as you can see, I'm walking. So. We believe in miracles, for miracles, but do we expect them? We're going to have a, um, we're going to sing, we're going to perhaps go into a time of kind of free worship after the message today. And although it's not um, a usual week for the, for the prayer ministry team, that they've been released to pray for people. Um, we've negotiated with the unions about uh, extra, like sort of extra duties and it's all gone through. Um, it's cost us 10, no it hasn't cost us 10. <laughs> But they, they've been released just to, to kind of be, be moving around and praying for people. And maybe you're in need of a miracle today. It may not be health-wise, it may be. It may be a situation that you just can't see a way out of. You need God to turn it around. Why not ask to be prayed for today? Expect it, call for it, and celebrate it. So the third point this morning is Mary's house was a house of credibility. He described how the master had gotten him out of jail. Then he said, tell James and the brothers what's happened. He left them and went off to another place. Now, in the late 90s, my friend Adam bought a jet ski. And he used to let me have a go on it. And we'd take it out to a lake alongside the A5 near Cannock. They've since built part of the M6 toll over it. And we'd spend Saturday afternoons on this lake on the jet ski. And we were talking about it one day. And another friend chipped in with a story about how he used to jet ski around the canals of Tipton. <laughs> He'd never mentioned this before. The sort of thing, if I've been jet skiing around the canals of Tipton, that's a story to, that's, that's an anecdote to dine out on, isn't it? He'd never mentioned it before and it just seemed odd. It had no credibility. And it made you question some of his other more extraordinary stories because his credibility had been undermined. Now in Acts 12, though we read after being let in and calming the, the gathering, Sorry, in Acts 12, though, we read, after being let in and calming the <coughs> gathering down, Peter described the events of his release before casually telling the believers, tell James and the brothers what's happened. Peter was credible. The people gathered believed his account, but in sending them out to tell James and the brothers, it highlights the fact that Mary's house and the believers were also credible. Peter didn't need to go and see James and the others himself. He could send others knowing that they would be believed. And if we become in a community with Jesus at the centre, we too need to be credible. What do I mean? Well, a community with Jesus at the centre should be attractional, pulling others in. However, for, for different reasons, the church doesn't hold the credibility that it once did. For some reason, for some, there's a, a great mistrust in the church, 
And we need to restore the credibility of the church in society. Would you agree? Yes. In opportunities have come up in recent years and continue to do so for the church to begin to regain credibility to some extent. Food banks being places of welcome places of warmth more recently. Activity which shows the church cares and can make a difference to people's lives. But we need to take those opportunities to also gain spiritual credibility. What we say and how we say it has to be credible. It has to be more than words. And it has to be backed up with actions where possible. And it's becoming increasingly challenging as society seemingly drifts further away from a biblical foundation. And where holding on to the truth of the gospel can seemingly set you on a collision course with various groups in society. And that's where and why personal relationships and contacts are so important. The circle of people you mix with is different from the circle of people I mix with. Hopefully, you have credibility in your circle. So if you start discussion, discussing your faith or invite someone to church, they're at least prepared to consider it because you're credible in their eyes. And you wouldn't suggest something that was going to be for their detriment and not for their good. Whereas I, if I as a stranger approached them, they would probably be a bit more reluctant. Yeah? If I went up to someone, you can go up to people and strangers and God moves, but most of the time you need that connection and credibility. And we need to be credible as we reach out to others, but also as we liaise with people in positions of responsibility and authority. The council wouldn't be giving us a talk unless they believed in the credibility of Junction 10. We wouldn't be getting that unless they believed in the credibility of Junction 10. And you may not present be present in those discussions and meetings and we've got to thank God for Kev as he does lead on that area but people do watch what goes on and Kev podcasts listen to aren't they hopefully I've not said anything today to, to get us into trouble but podcasts listen to because people want to know about the credibility so Mary's house was a house of credibility the penultimate point Mary's house was a house of generational blessing. Verse 25, Barnabas and Saul, once they had delivered the relief offering to the church in Jerusalem, went back to Antioch. This time they took John with them, the one they called Mark. Having started their mission, having started their mission work, Barnabas and Silas, Barnabas and Saul, sorry, took John, who they called Mark, with them on their next trip. They were training up the next person. And I said this short study was inspired by something Simon Jarvis shared at the minister's training. And while chatting at the end of last week, Andre reflected on the role that Simon's dad, Mike Jarvis, had on his development as a young person through putting on youth camps because he had a heart to develop the next generation. And something that obviously Mike's passed that on to his son, Simon. And we recognise the significance the importance of the next generation here at Junction 10. It's why we appointed and prioritised the appointment of a kids and youth pastor. And we thank Sue and we thank Matt for joining us. Such a fantastic job that Sue does and Matt supporting that as well with the team around her. It's why we took communion together today. The interns programme has been a really positive development and we've heard excellent reports from those who've been attending Young Lions. But we have also been challenged in the leadership review, uh, in the review of Junction 10 about the leadership development. And demographically, we do have a gap in terms of people in their 20s. There's some, but numbers are low. But we'll continue to invest in our young people. 
but we have to then see them developing their giftings. And that may mean disturbing our usual patterns, giving people opportunities to, to minister, and being amazed at what they bring, or maybe encourage them so that they can be better next time, just like people did with me. Still get encouragement now um, to be better next time. So how can you help the next generation? Well, have a chat over a coffee at the end of the service. Show an interest in what they're doing. Little things which help people feel connected and seen, seen and valued. A house of credibility. And the last thing, and again, perhaps a more obvious one. Mary's house was a house of unity. Peter knew the believers would be gathered together when he was released. When he actually got out of prison. We read in Psalm 133, how good and pleasant it is when God's people live together in unity. It's like a precious oil poured on the head, running down on the beard, running down on Aaron's beard, down on the collar of his robe. It is as if the dew of Hermon were falling on Mount Zion, for there the Lord bestows his blessing, even life evermore. The early believers gathered together, praying in agreement with one another for Peter. Among all the persecution that they were facing, this group, was united. They were joined together for the cause of Christ. And that kind of unity is powerful. It releases a spiritual power, a powerful spiritual dynamic. It's good and it commands God's blessing. Who remembers the cartoon Peanuts? Yeah. Charlie Brown? Apparently there's a, a Peanuts cartoon in which Lucy demanded that Linus, it, Linus was the one with the blanket, wasn't he? Lucy demanded that Linus change the television channel and threatened him with a fist if he didn't. What makes you think you can walk right in here and take over, asked Linus. These five fingers, says Lucy. Individually, they're nothing, but when I curl them together like this into a single unit, they form a weapon that is terrible to behold. Which channel would you like, said Linus. Turning away, looks at his fingers and says, why can't you guys get organised like that? When two or three people come together in agreement, Jesus himself promises to be with them. His presence exerts more power than we can even imagine in our lives and in our circumstance. He says in Matthew 18, verses 19 to 20, Again, truly I tell you that if two of you on earth agree about anything they ask for, it will be done for them by my Father in heaven. For where, there are two, or three, for where two or three gather in my name, there I am with them. God's with us as individuals, but our power increases as we come together in unity and agreement. In Deuteronomy, the Bible says that one can put 10,000 to flight and two can run off 10,000. That's some good multiplication. I'd like to see the mass theory behind that one. This morning, are we a house of unity? Do we gather in agreement with one another? Because God's blessing rests on unity and his presence is with those who agree in his name. You know, the enemy's working tirelessly to divide people, to bring strife in relationships, to provoke anger and jealousy and keep people at odds with each other. But if we're a community with Jesus at the centre, there should be less and less opportunity for the enemy to get a foothold. Because we need to understand the power of unity and agreement and though we do need private times with God... We also need to exercise that, those times of prayer and, prayer, prayer and agreement together by talking to God and listening to his voice with others. So, 
As we conclude this morning, we've looked at seven statements about Mary's house, seven characteristics that we should be aspiring to if we to become a community with Jesus at the centre.